Chapter 9, Bulawayo. By the time Sam arrived in Bulawayo, Rhodesia, he was sick from coal fumes. His new district leader met him at the train station and drove him and his companion to their new area. He let them off on a street corner. Elders, this is a new area. Missionaries have never been here before and there's no boarding. Your first tracking assignment will be to find boarding. I will come back to this street corner at 6 o'clock to deliver your bags. If you haven't found any, you will have no place to sleep. He hopped back into the car and drove away. This was something unexpected, and neither Sam nor Elder Palmer had a clue what to do. Finally, Elder Palmer suggested that they have a prayer. Standing there on the street corner, they bowed their heads, and Elder Palmer offered a prayer. When he was done, they walked down the street as if they knew both where they were going. Without a word or signal, they turned into a fourth house and knocked on the door. An older woman answered the door. She seemed surprised and openly pleased to see them. Good afternoon, ma'am, Elder Palmer said. We're missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we're looking for accommodations in this area. Do you know of anywhere we might inquire? She said that she thought a Mrs. Whiting took in boarders and gave them directions. They walked several blocks and found the house. Mrs. Whiting was indeed looking for boarders and welcomed them. They offered the amount the district leader had suggested, and Mrs. Whiting's eyes grew big. She declined that amount, but insisted on a lesser amount. Their room was a large bedroom with two beds, a large wardrobe, an attached bathroom, and a beautiful view. It was almost more than Sam or Elder Palmer could believe. They paid her the first month's rent, and she gave them a key to the house. Elder Palmer was over six feet tall, almost two inches taller than Sam. Where Sam's weight was compact and hard, Palmer was loose and flabby. The skin on his face sagged and looked sallow. Sam wondered about Elder Palmer's health. In time, he learned that his companion was suffering from various health problems and had to get special permission from the First Presidency to go on his mission. Perhaps that's why he took missionary work so seriously, because it cost him dearly to do it. He was exhausted when they got home each day. They tracked for the rest of the afternoon before realizing they were lost. They realized they really had no idea which corner the district leader had left them at. It was approaching 6 o'clock when they rounded a corner a quite and quite miraculously ended up at the right place. Minutes later, the district leader pulled up and they climbed in. They drove to their new boarding and unloaded their bags. Rhodesia is a small country of about 150,000 square miles. It sits on some of the most beautiful and mineral abundant real estate in the world. The soil is a dark red and in some places a bluish black, in others and in others still a deep green. The soil color changes according to the type of mineral present. Red soils indicate iron deposits, blue-black soils indicate gold or silver, and green indicates copper deposits. The missionaries discovered that it was common to go into someone's home and see gold nuggets as large as tennis balls on the mantelpiece. Rhodesia was a country settled by whites from England, originally as an English commonwealth. Their neighboring country, northern Rhodesia, was a commonwealth as well in the late six. Uh, in the late 60s. Their English charter expired for both countries, and England began the process of turning the country over to the indigenous peoples, the blacks of the Xhota, and other tribes. Northern Rhodesia was renamed Zambia by the new government. It was a thriving colony because of the vast copper mines. At the one time, they had the largest copper mine in the world and exported more copper than any nation in Africa. They also exported more chromium than any nation on Earth. Less than one year after their charter expired, a local black man made himself king of Zambia and ordered the whites to work without compensation. In response, the white people flowed across the border into Rhodesia, leaving him without technical workers in the mines. He ordered his troops to kill any white person fleeing the country, and a bloodbath began that ended in civil war. 
Before the king was overthrown, over 30,000 whites had been slaughtered, and tens of thousands had been taken into slavery. In the meantime, the mines had flooded with water. When the white workers failed at the impossible task of evacuating the mines of the water, many of them and their families were slaughtered. Some escaped in daring rescues by friends and relatives from Rhodesia. Rhodesia's charter expired in 1965, and England began the process of dismantling the local government. The settlers, led by then-President Ian Smith, rebelled. An election was held, and the people black and white overwhelmingly re-elected Smith and commissioned him to issue a Declaration of Independence. England condemned Rhodesia before the United Nations, and the United Nations voted to sanction Rhodesia. Members, member nations were no longer allowed to trade anything except certain humanitarian supplies with Rhodesia. Trade with South Africa continued unaffected. The economic shock was catas uh, catastrophic. The high-production gold, copper, and silver mines shut down overnight. Without a buyer, even gold became valueless. Since South Africa already produced huge quantities of these minerals, they had no need to buy Rhodesias. Needed repair parts to keep vital utilities running became impossible to find, and utilities failed. Electricity only ran at certain times of the day, and water and fuels became scarce. Gasoline was rationed, jobs were non-existent, and money, currently the British pound, became scarce. President Smith coined the phrase, Prosperity Through Independence, and asked people to report to their jobs without expectation of pay. He ordered the printing of the Rhodesian dollar and asked the citizens to accept it without question. They did. In time, textile mills were built from smuggled parts. Machine shops made parts for automobiles. Utilities became more reliable as they learned to manufacture their own repair parts. People created cottage industries to create things normally purchased overseas, and the economy of the nation stabilized. In less than 10 years, they became an independent, though struggling, nation. The year Sam arrived, President Smith announced the completion of the nation's only auto manufacturing plant. It cranked out a small vehicle oddly similar to the Toyota Corolla. The church bought one of the first models to roll off that line. The district leader drove that vehicle. To Sam's eyes, it was a half-baked mess. It had holes drilled in the body for chrome trim, but none was installed. The front and rear bumpers were painted iron rather than chromed steel. The car had no heater, no radio, no horn, and air consistently blew through the heater vents. The clutch chattered, and the engine belched black smoke, but the car ran, and it soon became a symbol of national pride. One thing Sam quickly learned was that everything was cheap in Rhodesia. Cheap is in cost and construction. When he arrived in the country, he first purchased his first purchase was a new pair of shoes. They cost him less than four American dollars. They were handsome, lightweight shoes. They lasted great until Sam stepped into the first puddle. In three steps, they fell apart. He walked back home in his socks. The shoes were literally made of paper. The soles, sides, and everything else on the shoe were made of paper. But since all the shoes in Rhodesia were made that way, he simply bought another pair and avoided puddles. Sam's second pair of shoes lasted about a month, after which he had to buy another pair. No wonder they were so cheap. The new shoe industry thrived on a marketing necessity impossible under any other circumstances. Unlike South Africa, black people were welcome to participate in the economy in any way they chose. As many black students as whites attended college, black doctors, dentists, lawyers, and many of whom excelled at their trades saw many white clients. The race barrier was still there, but it was much thinner than in their large neighbor to the south. The people were divided into 
classes along economic lines with almost no middle class. Those who understood business started one and invariably found success. Missions dotted the hillside outside the town, and large cars were smuggled into the country. Those who understood only labor were paid paltry wages and lived in small, nearly unfurnished homes. It amazed Sam that one could walk four blocks and go from missions to shanties. What even amazed him further was that they found their greatest missionary success among the near slums of Bulawayo. The only difference between these rows of tiny houses and the true slum was pride. The people loved their country, understood sacrifice, and willingly gave of themselves. There was no filth, no litter, no chronic malcontent, and little, if any, crime. Everyone who wanted a job had one, and the opportunity to progress was wide open. The people felt no limitations on their future. They had seen the country go from bankruptcy to despair to economic stability and hope. They believed in their future, and it showed. Elder Palmer and Sam divided the days into even and odd. Sam would act as senior on odd days and Elder Palmer on even days. It soon became obvious that Elder Palmer was a hard worker. He understood, at least on the intrinsic level, the workings of the Spirit. Sam soon found out that his companion had a grasp of the scriptures that made Sam's head swim. The mission published a list of 400 scriptures for missionaries to memorize. They were encouraged to memorize one each day until they knew 365 of them. The remaining 35 were bonus scriptures. Elder Palmer nearly knew all of them, and Sam less than a third. On Elder Palmer's days, they played scripture chase while they tracted. The object was to quote a portion of a scripture, and then your companion had to finish the scripture and give the reference. If they failed, they lost a point. At lunchtime, whoever was behind bought the other a soft drink. Soft drinks in Rhodesia contained no artificial flavors, since there was no technology to create them. They were pure carbonated fruit juices. Sam found them delightful, and he decided to win as many of them as possible. Because neither of them could afford many soft drinks, whoever lost had to watch the other drink it, usually to appropriately exaggerated size of delight. Elder Palmer also taught Sam how to tip rocks. This was done by placing the inside of his shoe beside a rock as he was walking. Just as he was about to lift his foot, he would flip his toe. The rock became a projectile, inflicting non-lethal damage to Sam's shins. Elder Palmer was a pro, and for weeks Sam had bruised ankles. With a little practice, Sam also learned how to tip rocks. However, Elder Palmer would give a little skip whenever Sam tipped one at him, and the rock would invariably miss. At first, it seems like a brutal, unmissionary-like sport, but there was a small satisfaction in it that allowed the release of pent-up frustrations that otherwise went unexpressed. They soon developed a set of de facto rules. No rocks bigger than a golf ball, never in the tracting area or in public places, only when walking to and from tracting areas, and so on. It kept it friendly and relatively private. In a short time, they had teaching appointments, and their missionary hearts soared. The first Sunday meeting was a shock for Sam. They walked nearly two miles to the chapel. It was on a major thoroughfare and visible for miles. It was nearly the biggest building in that part of town and certainly the biggest church. As soon as they stepped inside, happy members mobbed them. They were escorted to seats on the stand and were treated like visiting general authorities. They were each invited to bear their testimonies and tell where they were from. The branch president was Brother Braithwaite, formerly from England. He conducted the services and with a humble heart and the spirit was present in abundance. The talks were simple yet inspiring, and the music was sung without accompaniment. The congregation consisted of ten families, with about sixty people attending sacrament meeting. After the meeting, Sister Braithwaite invited them to lunch at the Braithwaite's home. 
The elders gratefully accepted. While they were waiting for President Braithwaite to finish his branch president business, Sam investigated the organ in the chapel. It was locked, but he found a key in the bench. He was amazed to find out it was a new Allen organ made in America. It still had a manufacturer sticker on the keys to keep them from vibrating during shipment. He removed the strip and turned the organ on. The sound was rich and full and inspiring. He played, I am a child of God, and before he began the second verse, people had drifted back into the chapel and were singing. By the time the song finished, the entire creation had returned. Someone called out a page number. A request for the Spirit of God, like a fire is burning, thundered through the small chapel. Sam had never heard it sung more enthusiastically or with such righteous feeling. He knew the angels were also singing with him. He played for nearly two hours before he finally could play no more. He had not played an organ since the ward in Idaho, yet it was a wonderful experience. The Braithwaite's were ready to go, so he turned off the organ to loud but loving protests. Sister Braithwaite bundled them off to her home, which was in a somewhat affluent section of town. The entire ward came too, all sixty or so of them. Sam could not believe his eyes. Everyone who came also brought food. They ate, laughed, and eventually held a testimony meeting. It was a fantastically spiritual, and the fellowship was like nothing he had previously experienced. It felt to him as if they had entered a small portion of the celestial kingdom. The Braithwaites had no children, and Sister Braithwaite was not shy about telling everyone how desperately she wanted a baby. Sister Braithwaite, Sharon, as she preferred to be called, was 35, blonde, blue-eyed, and unusually beautiful. She had a model's body and a dazzling smile to melt any man's heart. Her laughter was second only to her keen sense of humor. She loved her husband with a deep passion. A recent convert to the church, she possessed a spiritual depth that bore testimony of premortal greatness. From her high-energy enthusiasm to her fast speech and zest for life, she almost seemed to be living life in double time. Yes, Sharon had everything, including leukemia. She was not expected to live much more than two to three years. The doctors insisted that she do not have the health to carry a child a full term. She had tried and suffered three miscarriages. They feared that another attempt would be fatal to her. Reluctantly, she had given up on the immediate hope of bearing a child, yet steadfastly maintained her faith that she would have her precious child before she left this earth. Her greatest hope was to go to America, where she uh, just knew that she could be cured of her disease and have her baby. Sam and Elder Palmer looked at one another when she said this, but neither of them tried to disabuse her of her dream. Missionary work in Bulawayo was a joy. They rarely had a door slammed in their faces, and at least among the poor classes of people, most everyone they met seemed pleased that they were there. They were a curiosity, an anomaly in the land, and people hungered for news of the outside world. Their challenge became finding a way to determine who was interested in the gospel and who was just interested in them as visitors from another planet. They would often be walking down the street and have someone open their door and call them over to visit. It was so different from South African missionary work that Sam wondered if he were walking in a dream. Still, the bulk of their investigators come from the poorer section of town. Elder Palmer was also a joy to work with. He was sensitive to the spirit and obedient to Sam. As obedient as Sam. Together, they taught with power and people began requesting baptism. The day was over and they were walking down the darkened street through an area that had previously tracted. They had previously tracted. It was nine o'clock and time for them to hurry home. They were both tired and fo foot sore. As they came to the middle of the street, both of them came to the stop. It was Sam's day. 
So he said what they were both feeling. Elder, I think we need to knock on one more door. Elder Palmer nodded and started up the walk directly in front of them. Sam grabbed his arm and pointed across the street. Just testing you, Elder, Palmer said laughing. Together they crossed the dark street. The house was unusually small and had no porch light on. Only a dim light in one of the rooms gave any hint of occupation. Sam knocked and waited as someone walked noisily through the small house. In a moment, a woman opened the door. Her hair was stringy and disarrayed. She snapped on the porch light as she opened the door, but left the screen door closed between them. They could see the very little of her features, except that she was tall and dressed in a loose-fitting cotton smock that was torn at the neck. A small child clung to her left leg and was making whimpering noises. Her expression was not friendly, but it definitely was not welcoming. A feeling of darkness and despair emanated from her that Sam found oppressive. He started to give a door approach when something unusual came from his lips. Good evening, ma'am. We are missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have come to tell you about the Family Home Union Program, which strengthens families and draws them closer together. Would you have a few minutes for me to explain it? Do I have to buy something? She... <laughs> I don't understand my accents. Ah. Do I have to buy something? She asked suspiciously. Sam chuckled. It was the first time he had been asked that. No, nothing to buy, he answered. She nodded meekly and pushed open the screen door. The room they entered was smaller than Sam's bedroom at home. It had a wooden, rough floor and a single couch against one side. She turned on a lamp without a shade, which made a harsh glow in the room. She bought brought a chair from the kitchen and put it against the opposite wall of the room. When the elders sat down, their knees were less than three feet apart. The woman lifted her daughter to her lap. The child was beautiful and wore a thin cotton dress. Both mother and daughter were barefoot. Sam noticed that the little one's front teeth were missing and the mother had the remains of a black eye. She introduced herself as Elaine Knight and her daughter as Eleanor. Eleanor buried her face in her mother's chest and curled up into a ball. Sam guessed her age at about four years old. Mrs. Knight, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is led by a living prophet, and one of the things he has given us is the Family Home Evening Program. It's where families meet together each Monday evening to share gospel stories and fun, have fun together. It strengthens families and builds bonds between them. Mrs. Knight stared at him as if she did not understand a word he was saying. He continued, Would you be interested in having us come back and share a family home evening with you to show you how it may benefit your family? Does it have to be a Monday, she asked. Sam was surprised that she had understood that much. No, any night. We would like to do it when your husband is home, though. Her face soured, but she shrugged it off. How about this Friday? I think that's the day Thomas is coming home. Sam consulted his pocket diary, and they made an appointment. Within minutes, the elders were back out on the street, and the porch light snapped off. They made their way back to the boarding in silence. Palmer didn't tip a rock at him once. Friday came, and they found themselves standing a half a block away from the knight's home. Elder Palmer was not sure he liked what Sam proposed. I've never done a family home evening with an investigator. What are we going to do? Sam shifted his weight to one foot. He wasn't sure, but what was sure they needed to follow through. We were going to have a family home evening with them, just like they were our own family. We'll say the prayers, sing the songs, and teach the lesson. I have some cookies Sister Braithwaite baked for us, and we'll share them. It may be a bus, but we have to try. Elder, I sing like a dying cow. Me too, Sam admitted, and they both laughed. We'll soon know if you were inspired or just at wit's end, won't we? Elder Palmer said quietly as he rang the buzzer.
A tall, balding man answered the door. He looked too young to be going bald. The man scrutinized them for a second and pushed open the screen. Sam introduced them just as Mrs. Knight came and stood beside her husband. You should know that we are Jehovah's Witnesses and aren't interested in Mormonism, he said in reply. His voice was gruff. Mrs. Knight punched him in the side and he laughed. Just kidding, come on in. You're going to show us how to have a happier family. Oh, no. Yeah, come on in. You're going to show us how to have a happier family? If anyone in the world needs that, we do. Sit over there, he said, indicating that the one couch in the room. They sat in exactly the same spot as before. Sam asked Elder Palmer to offer the opening prayer. Afterward, he slowly recited the words to the first verse of I am a child of God. The idea f was for the investigators to join in. It didn't happen. And he and the Elder Palmer sang the verse alone. Neither of the knights made an attempt to sing. Elder Palmer had told the truth. He did sing like a dying cow. During their song, Mr. Knight struggled to keep a smirk off his face. <laughs> Mrs. Knight punched him in the side again. Sam gave a short lesson on trust. He told a story of a little girl who had the job of taking her daddy's lunch to him each day while he was digging a well. Each day the well was a little deeper and eventually she had to drop his lunch down to him. Each day she would hear her daddy catch the bag and she would return home. Finally, the well was so deep that she could not see her father, only hear the voice from far below. Even when she couldn't see him, he caught the lunch every time. One day, as she came to the well, she found that the forest was on fire. She was too small to climb down the rope, and her father did not have time to climb up to her. She was afraid, and the heat of the fire was growing nearer. She called down to her father, who called up to her with a single word, jump. Sam turned to Eleanor, who was cuddled on her mother's lap. Her mother called her Ellie. Ellie, Sam said, what do you think happened? Do you think her daddy caught her in his arms? Ellie looked at her father with large, frightened eyes. Then she looked at her mother and back at Sam. She stuck two fingers in her mouth, which her mother pulled back out with a loud sucking noise. Finally, Ellie nodded. You're right. Her daddy did catch her, and they were safe from the fire. Sister Knight, why do you think that the little girl was able to jump into the dark well? Because she trusted her daddy and knew he wouldn't drop her. Her voice was sure and a little accusatory. She glanced at Thomas. Is it possible for us to help our children develop trust in our love for them so that when the need arises, they will be able to trust us like this little girl in the story? I would like to know how, Brother Knight said in all seriousness. I would never trust someone with my life like that. Nobody ever inspired that kind of trust in me. Sam smiled at him encouragingly. How we do this is by earning that trust a little at a time. The little girl in the story came to trust her daddy to catch the lunch sack. As the whale grew deeper, her trust grew stronger. We can earn our children's trust. That's what this lesson is about. In the absence of learning to trust, children fear and mistrust. But it can be earned if we are willing to take the effort to do it. Through all this, the knights had sat with wooden faces, hardly involved in the meeting and obviously not enjoying it. An air of strained discomfort hung in the room. Sam felt foolish and wondered why he had felt inspired to get into this mess. They passed out the cookies, skipped the closing song, and had a closing prayer. With no desire to remain in the uncomfortable situation a moment longer, they both stood as if on cue. As they were leaving, Elder Palmer handed Brother Knight a Joseph Smith pamphlet and told them about living prophets in the church today. Brother Knight tossed it on the sofa without giving it a glance. They both breathed a sigh of relief when they regained the street. 
It had been an uncomfortable experience, and they were both glad it was over. As the days slipped by, the night family evaporated from their minds. It was nearly two weeks later when they were again walking past their home that the elders both came to a breath, an abrupt stop. I think we should visit the night, Elder Palmer finished for him. They both wondered why as they crossed the street, and they were both there to do the Lord's work, and both felt impressed to stop. Their previous FHE still rang a dull tone in their memories, and neither looked forward to another meeting. Mrs. Knight opened the door. As soon as she saw who it was, her face brightened, and she called into the house. The Mormons are back. In moments, Thomas joined her and pushed open the screen. They went inside. Thomas brought two chairs from the kitchen, and Elaine got the pamphlet. As soon as... They sat down. She held it open for them to see. Many paragraphs were underlined in red. We read the pamphlet together about the new prophet, Thomas said. We had no idea there was another prophet on earth. I read it three times before I realized the dates. I assume Joseph Smith is dead now. Who's the current one? Is there a current one? What's his name? Why isn't it in the newspapers? This is important, you know, Thomas told them with some urgency in his voice. A brief yet lively discussion followed about living prophets. A missionary's greatest happiness is teaching someone ready for the truth. It follows, then, that a missionary's greatest joy would be teaching someone of simple and pure faith, literally starving for truth. Sam was tasting the sweet, sweet fruits of missionary joy, and it thrilled him to the center of his soul. The knights questioned them with eagerness and simply believed. There was no doubt, no cross-examination, no dispute or debate. Their, souls hungered, their hungry souls simply received the truth with childlike faith. After being told about the current living prophet, Elaine poked Thomas in the ribs. Told you, she said. Tom was that Joseph Smith... No, Tom said that Joseph Smith died and there wasn't a, another one. But I told him God wouldn't start something and then just let it die out. Again, told you. Her husband chuckled at her. Thomas leaned forward. I have been trying to do the whole trust thing with little Ellie, and guess what? He leaned forward as if going to tell a secret. It's working a little. She hasn't trusted me since I busted her teeth out. Don't blame her none, but I was drunk and I didn't even remember doing it. I gave Elaine a black eye too. Don't remember that either. I still feel terrible about it, but it was the drink, not me. The best thing is that Ellie is acting better toward me already. He leaned back. I just need to figure out how to get the trust with Elaine now. She still won't let me sleep. Uh, won't let me sleep at home. Don't blame her though. Elaine punched him in the side and gave him a meaningful look. He gave her a frown, but his eyes were smiling. At that moment, Ellie came from the back of the house. She was in pajamas and clutching a threadbare teddy bear. She scanned the room and walked over to Sam. She held up her arms, and he lifted her onto his lap. She was as light as a feather. She curled up against him and started sucking her fingers. With her other hand, she twisted his tie. Thomas cleared his throat. Elder Palmer, would you give us an opening prayer so that we can get started with learning about this new prophet? Palmer's mouth dropped open, but he was quickly recovered and offered a simple but lovely prayer. As soon as they said amen, the knights peppered them with more questions. It was all the elders could do to keep up with one before they came up with another. Every answer given was accepted, and it was as if they had been starved for months and were now being allowed to savor a great feast. During the meeting, both of them smoked constantly. In a short time, the room was dense with smoke, making it unpleasant in the cramped and stuffy little home. Thomas noticed this and opened the front door. Several hours passed before the elders finally left. It was later that they should have stayed out. What? Several hours passed before the elders finally left. It was later than they should have stayed out. 
The knights begged them to come again the next evening, which they did. The following evening, the knights looked restless and fidgeted with their hands. After the opening prayer, they announced simultaneously that they had quit smoking. The missionaries were astonished and asked why. Well, Sister Knight said matter-of-factly, my parents are Jehovah's Witnesses, and they told us that you Mormons don't smoke or drink. They are furious that we are talking to you chaps because they have been trying to convert us for years. So, Thomas interjected, we figure if we are going to join the true church, we had better start acting like it. So we gave up smoking. Well, actually, Elaine gave up smoking, and I'm about halfway there. She gave it up just like that. He snapped his fingers. I'm struggling with it, but I'll make it. He will, too, Elaine said. He's bullheaded like an ox, but when he sets his mind, it's set. He said he wants to join the Mormon church, and that's that. So I had to scramble to make up my mind. I know it's true. I just didn't know how much about it. Know what I mean? You better teach me fast. And I want to know, Thomas added, if it's true that we have to give up tea and coffee. Yes, isn't it wonderful how much Heavenly Father cares about us? Sam replied, a smile on his face. Damn, Thomas said, and Elaine poked him in the ribs. Oh, sorry, what I mean is, I'll get to that next. Smoking first, drinking next, and then tea and coffee. Damn, I mean, darn. She poked him again. Ask them about tithing, Elaine urged. Ask them. Tithing too, he asked. A tenth, Sam said. Only a tenth? That's not much. I spend more on that on cigarettes. I'll get healthier, we'll pay tithing, and we'll still have money left over. This will be great. When can we start? Do we have to be baptized first, or we can we start paying tithing next Sunday? Do you Mormons pass a basket for donations? How do we pay it? You put it in an envelope and privately hand it to the branch president. I like that way much better. There's so much pressure when you pass the basket. I never thought it was right for God's church, Thomas said. Elaine's voice was excited as she informed him, We want to come to church next Sunday. Is that all right? Absolutely. It'll be wonderful to have you, Sam responded, his head spinning. Elder Palmer gave him a bewildered look. Neither of them would have surprised, been surprised if the knights had both jumped up and shouted, April Fools! Except they knew the knights were serious. By this time, Ellie had twisted Sam's tie until he was choking. He took it from her sticky little hands and untwisted it. Then he put it back into her hands. Here, twist it the other way for a while. Ellie smiled and whispered, Okay. Thomas bolted to his feet and Elaine clapped a hand over his mouth. Over her mouth, he turned to his wife and exclaimed, Did you hear that? Elaine nodded, tears forming in her eyes. What? Sam asked, completely baffled. Ellie has never spoken to a stranger. Not one word. Not ever. This is the first word we've heard her say to anyone but us. She said, Okay. It's a miracle. A miracle! Her mother cried. Okay, Ellie said again, and furiously twisted Sam's tie. Well, she's still pretty young. Some kids are shy for the... A long time. How old is she? About four? Elder Palmer asked. She's almost eight, Thomas said. Sam fear felt tears pooling in his eyes. Somehow the twisted tie felt sweet against his neck. Okay, little Ellie asked, and Sam could only nod. That first Sunday, brother and sister Knight acted nervous. Sister Knight wore excessive makeup, and Thomas had polished his shoes until he wore through the paper. Ellie sat on Tom's lap and twisted his tie. Sam had tried to explain that they should wait until they were baptized to take the sacrament. When it was passed to them, they both partook. Elaine leaned over to him and whispered, Sorry, but in our hearts we are already members, you know. She poked him in the ribs. Sam just nodded. In his heart he knew her words were true. As the days progressed into weeks, the change that came over the nights was miraculous. Each time the elders visited, they felt a sweeter spirit in the home. 
Thomas surprised Elaine by buying her a refrigerator with money he saved from not smoking. It was an old American-made model with the large coils on top. It was probably 50 years old, but it worked, and it made cold air. To them, it was a miracle. Their kitchen was so small that they had to put it in the living room, where they proudly showed the elders the carton of milk for Ellie. Each day, Ellie spoke a little more until she practically, practically became a jabberbox. Sam had to bring trinkets for her to play with just to keep her quiet. Without exception, if Sam was in the room, she was in his lap. She, he loved little Ellie, and his heart ached for her. She was so small and her heart so hungry that he wished he could give her something to feed her body and soul all the nourishment that had missed in her short life. With the extra money they had from not smoking, they ate better and Ellie began to grow. Elaine sewed her a new dress, and she began to laugh and play like a normal child. Every once in a while, she lapsed into the tie-twisting silence, but that became less frequent and eventually vanished. The branch nearly swallowed the night's hole. They lavishly lavished unfailing love upon them. In a short time, the knights were friends with everyone and would have continued to attend church even if they had been denied baptism. Sam watched all this with a sense of wonder and thought about how this little branch a thousand miles away from anywhere was more like Zion than any place he had ever seen. The knights were baptized exactly four weeks from the night of the botched family home evening. Sam baptized Thomas, and Elder Palmer baptized Elaine. The entire branch was there. Every priesthood holder present stood to confirm them. It was a token of the absolute unity they felt one toward another. Afterward, they held a dinner party to celebrate. Ellie ate about half the food on the table. Her parents consumed as much love and fellowship as their souls could absorb. The next Sunday, Thomas was ordained a deacon, and he helped pass the sacrament. Tears streamed down to Sister Knight's face throughout the entire service. Her eyes were glued to him as he moved reverently from row to row. It was as if she, was, she were repeatedly shouting, I love you, I love you. Everyone in the chapel sensed it, and a few eyes were dry, including, and few eyes were dry, including Sam's. The following Monday, they met with the knights. They taught them how to study the scriptures and how to use the index and Bible dictionary. It was a fun meeting. When they were about to leave, a feeling of concern came over Sam. Brother and Sister Knight, I have a concern I want to share with you. Sure, Elder, what's on your mind? Brother Knight replied. Worldwide, about half of the people who are baptized later fall away. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm surprised, Sister Knight said. I can't imagine anyone falling away. I know what you mean, Sam agreed. However, you can imagine that your joining the church in a great, is a great disappointment to Satan. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Well, let the old bugger be disappointed. I don't care, Brother Knight said laughingly. Still, I feel impressed to tell you that I have observed a particular pattern that Satan seems to use in trying to get people to leave the church. It usually starts by someone giving them anti-Mormon literature. So I want to tell you... Uh, I want you to tell me when that happens, okay? As a matter of fact, it already happened, Sister Knight said as she stood and walked out of sight. In a few seconds, she returned with a handful of pamphlets. My mom and dad brought these over. We weren't going to read them, but I did anyway, and they are disturbing. I just figured they were lies, but even still, it makes me wonder about things. Did I do wrong by reading them? No, let's talk about your questions. It's like I said, apostasy usually starts this way. You can just accept it as being... Uh, no. You can just accept it as a witness that you have done the right thing. The gospel is true, but Satan has a plan that works to deceive people from the truth. So he uses it over and over. We can talk about the anti-literature in a minute. I'm curious. 
What's the next thing that usually happens? Sister Knight wanted to know. She picked up a pad and began making notes. Usually, the next thing is that the new member is offended by a member of the church. This is a big one and usually works. The members of the church are wonderful, but they are just people, and Satan can usually get one of them to give an offense. Many new members leave because they are offended or embarrassed. When it happens, you have to overlook it, forgive them, and go on. Okay, we'll let you know when that one happens. What's next? Next, people come across doctrine that they thought they understood, but they find out that it's different than they thought, which challenges their testimonies. When that happens, you need to fast and pray and perhaps get some counsel from church leaders. The church is true and the doctrine is beautifully complete. You just have to be humble enough to let faith, to have the faith that our understanding of it is never complete. That's a good one. Okay, what's next? Well, at some point, a person in position of leadership will make an error or even commit a sin against the new member. At least this may appear to be the case. The key to overcoming this is to forgive the leader and allow him to be human and make mistakes. Sometimes this one gets harder even uh, this one gets harder when they don't seem to be repenting. Even then the principle is the same. We have to forgive and have to remember that the truthfulness of the church does not crumble because a leader makes a mistake. Well of course not, she asserted. Okay, what's next? From here, I don't know any particular pattern. By this time, you should be strong enough in faith that you can handle most anything that comes along. Just remember that your faith and testimony are more important than anything else, and never sacrifice them to justify your pride or punish another for some offense. It was barely two weeks later when both the knights came up to the elders outside the church. They seemed excited to get to them and talk to them privately. Guess what, elders? Sister Knight said excitedly, placing a hand on each of their arms. It happened. Someone offended me and embarrassed me right in Relief Society. I gave the opening prayer, and the lesson was on prayer, and about um, not doing almost everything I had done. Oh, and the lesson was on prayer and about not doing almost everything I had done. I was so embarrassed. It was awful, and for a few minutes I thought about stomping out of the room and never coming back. Then I remembered what you told me. I walked right up to that sister and asked her to forgive me for saying the prayer wrong. She was surprised, because she didn't realize she had offended me. She got this look on her face of total embarrassment when she realized what she had done. She said she was thinking about her lesson during the prayer and hadn't really heard it. So she was so ashamed and asked me to forgive her. We hugged and are friends now. It's wonderful and I'm going... I am so grateful for the warning. We are going to watch closely for those other things and not let them throw us off. Just thought you'd like to know. In the southern hemisphere, winter comes in May and lasts for several months. Winter consists of two months of rain, sheet lightning, terrifying thunderstorms, and wind. The temperature never drops below 50 degrees and the humidity not below 80%. The first rainstorm of the season caught Sam and Elder Palmer out walking. The rain hit the pavement so hard that it bounced back up. They ran nearly a mile home, arriving thoroughly soaked. When they were almost there, a clap of thunder sounded above them, and a flash of lightning exploded in the sky from east to west and rolled horizontally along the underside of the clouds until the entire sky was a huge, dazzling, blinding electrical discharge. In less than a heartbeat, it had roared across the sky from north to south with a crackling scream that was terrifying. Seconds later, Sam was lying on his face, covering his head with his arms, and Elder Palmer was kneeling beside him, his face a sheet of white, his hair standing on end. What was that? Sam yelled. Satan! Palmer yelled back, only half-joking. Run! they cried together, and they ran the remaining several blocks home. 
Half crouching as they went, each time the sheet lightning exploded over them, they fought the urge to hit the ground. They found out later that sheet lightning is one of the most spectacular and least dangerous of lightning phenomenon. They dried off in their room and put on dry clothes except that clothing is never dry in 90% humidity. In a tropical country like Africa, homes are not heated. The inside of the house was the exact temperature as the outside. They shivered in their damp clothing as they tried to study the scriptures. When they finally went to bed, the thin blankets did nothing to warm them. After a few hours, Sam got back up and pulled a rug off the floor onto his bed. He began to warm a bit after that and finally slept. He was still cold when he awoke. His first thoughts were of a hot bath and he hurried to draw water. In Africa, trees and lumber are scarce and homes are constructed of bricks and concrete. The bathtub sat on a concrete floor and by the time he climbed in, the water was already lukewarm. Even filled with hot water, the tub was cold on the bottom. Before he climbed out, he felt colder than when he had gotten in. He hurriedly toweled off in the cold room, put on a damp clothing, and shivered the entire day. Sam had never been so cold in his life. The only time he got warm was when they walked briskly to their tracting area. As soon as they stopped, however, the breeze would whip through their damp clothing and the cold would return. Being inside a house made no difference. Most homes were not made tight against the wind. The main rooms were open at the eaves of the roof to let air circulate. To seal a house tightly was to condemn it to destruction by mildew and mold. The doors had no thresholds to keep out the breeze. Even in snowstorms and sub-zero temperatures at home, he had not felt this cold this long. The next time the district leader came around, he informed the elders that he challenged the city basketball team to a game. Sam couldn't believe his ears. Elder Tingy was tall and wiry and had played basketball in college. His companion was short and quick and almost as good as Tingley. Sam had never played basketball because of his poor vision. Elder Palmer said that Sam could hit the basket if he tried hard enough. Two other missionaries were coming from a neighboring town to join them. The only reason Sam consented to this humiliation was that he figured it was a good way to get warm. The game was scheduled for the following Monday. They arrived at the field house, which contained a nice basketball court and bleachers. The stands were packed with townspeople. Almost all the members of the church came, along with several hundred others. Someone handed them the local newspaper. The front page held a story about the Americans challenging the local team. The article only mentioned in passing that they were all missionaries for the church. Since they were six players, Sam took a welcome position on the bench. He was grateful because his basketball skills were badly underdeveloped. The referee blew the whistle, and Elder Tingley out-jumped the other center and grabbed the ball. In less than 30 seconds, he flew to the other end of the court and made a basket. The other team put two players on him, and it was the last free basket he got. The other team was good, and in less time than Sam believed possible, they had scored three baskets. The score was 6-2. Tingley was all over the court, running constantly, shooting every... Uh, every time he got the ball, but he was double-teamed, and few of his efforts were fruitful. The other four missionaries on the court did almost nothing. When the score hit 12-4, Elder Palmer called a timeout. Elder Palmer quietly scolded Elder Tingley for trying to win the game by himself. Elder Tingley nodded, sweat running down his face. Elder Palmer suggested that they pass the ball around to see what the other members of the team could do. He mentioned that if he were outside the key, Elder Tingley should toss him the ball. He wouldn't let them down. The ball went to Tingley, who dribbled it to the key, quickly became surrounded, and bounced the ball to Palmer, who was standing at the top of the key. Elder Palmer tossed the ball toward the hoop as if it were a wad of paper, and the ball swished through the hoop. 
The other team missed their shot, and the ball came back to their end. Palmer had stayed about half-court. Tingley's companion rebounded and tossed the ball to Palmer. He turned, booked two steps, and swished the ball. As the game progressed, the strategy became one of getting the ball to Palmer, who generally stayed between half-court and the key. He hit the vast majority of the shots he attempted, some of them from nearly half-court. When the other team ganged up on Palmer, he tossed the ball to Tingley, who made, easily made the open shots in the key. The other elders dribbled and passed and had opportunities to make a few baskets themselves. The crowd roared with approval. They cheered every time either team made a basket. They had come to watch basketball, and who won was secondary to the fact that this was real entertainment, real people, and real basketball. By halftime, Tingley insisted Sam go in for him. Sweat was pouring down from his face, and he was approaching exhaustion. Sam huddled with the guys and only made one request. Throw the ball to me slowly, or bounce it, or I won't even catch it. In the first few seconds of entering the game, Palmer bounced the ball to Sam. He turned and made a basket. The ball rolled around the rim sloppily and went in. It was, uh, But it was worth as many points as Palmer swishes. It was the first basket Sam had ever made in his life and the only basketball game he had ever participated in. It felt electric to hear the crowd roar their approval. Sam was also flattered when two of the other team members started guarding him. However, they soon figured out that he was no threat and would went back to Palmer. As soon as he was not guarded, Sam's team members tossed him the ball and he made another sloppy basket. Sam stayed in nearly the entire quarter, during which time the other team got ahead. He really wasn't much help, and the other team easily stole from him. He learned by sad experience what double dribbling, traveling, and a host of other violations were, but none, no one became impatient or ordered him off the floor. As he became familiar with the ball and his own ability to actually catch it, he played in earnest and ran until his legs were quivery. In the end, he made six baskets, which was a lifetime high for him. When Elder Tingley replaced him, the score was 35-47 in the other team's favor. It was the fourth quarter, and everyone was exhausted. Happy to be back on the bench, Sam wiped sweat from his face and cheered the guys on. Tingley passed the ball more than he shot it, and Palmer continued to swish nearly every shot he threw. The other team began surrounding Palmer, and the other missionaries took advantage of the open court. When the game ended, they lost by a decent margin of 62-65. to 65. The crowd roared and ran out to the floor. The elders were slapped on their backs until it hurt, but the crowd was delighted. Everyone who shook the elders' hands got a Joseph Smith tract. It was unusual missionary work, but in that setting, the people thanked them like they received a precious American-made souvenir for free. When the crowd started thinning out, the other team came over and enthusiastically shook their hands. They said repeatedly that they were amazed that they had beaten a team from America. They were so impressed with themselves that no one had the heart to tell them that they were just a few missionaries and not the Harlem Globetrotters. Sam and Elder Palmer baptized three more families before Sam was transferred. One of them was Sister Knight's Jehovah's Witness parents. In all, they spent eight months together, and both of them wept when the letter came announcing Sam's transfer. The branch quickly organized a going-away picnic at the chapel. After the meal, they herded Sam to the organ, and he played for nearly two hours while the saints of God sang with great zeal. Finally, Sam played God Be With You Till We Meet Again. He could barely see the music for the tears in his eyes. He played the last verse almost without anyone singing, for their hearts were too tearful to make more than a whisper. He closed the organ lid and slid from the bench. He quickly shook everyone's hand, hugged them closest to his soul, kissed sweet Ellie on the cheek, and slipped out into the night. His heart was soaring with both rejoicing and anguish. 
He loved these people and knew he had righteously served the Lord among them. He also knew that in his lifetime he would never again visit this part of Zion.